Church membership is not synonymous with being a Christian. What John is simply saying is that those who are against Christ, Antichrist, they might start out by showing interest in the church, but they can't stand the church eventually over the long haul and leave it. In other words, if a church is going to glorify Christ, if a church is going to expound on the truth of Christ, if a church is dedicated to worshiping Christ, somebody who who comes into the church and really doesn't want to glorify, study, or worship Christ, will eventually say, I don't really like this place. The church is a place where everyone is welcome. Because the church is an open and welcoming environment, That means, of course, that unbelievers will be present in the church, and perhaps even active in the church. Now, if a church is truly following Christ, those who have no interest in Christ will eventually lose interest in the church. But in 1 John, we gain some insight regarding people who are opposed to Christ, but are present in the church. This is Wisdom for the Heart, and today Stephen has a message for you called Antichrists in the Assembly. Since the church began at Pentecost some 1900 years ago, the prophecies of a coming Antichrist have just sort of captured the fascination of so many. We're told in Scripture that the coming time of tribulation when the wrath of God is poured out upon the earth during seven years of horror and cataclysmic disasters one after another, that seven-year period, which is meant to not only judge the world but prepare Israel as a nation to receive Christ who returns to set up his kingdom. It's also a time in which Satan is allowed to carry out his evil agenda in and through the person of the Antichrist whom he will personally inhabit. This particular person, the Antichrist, is going to be uniquely and personally inhabited by Satan himself. And the Antichrist is going to revive the Roman Empire of old. He's going to rebuild Babylon to its former greatness. He's going to deceive nations and untold millions of people into believing that he is the incarnation of God on earth. He is the other Christ, the real Christ, the Antichrist. He will attempt to wipe Israel out, thus nullifying the potential fulfillment of a literal kingdom on earth as Christ sits upon David's throne. The Antichrist will fail, and Jesus will succeed, in case you haven't read ahead, But we're given a few clues about this coming world dictator. He's going to survive a mortal wound to the head. He'll rise to great political power, be accepted by all of the major world religions, including both Muslims and Jews, which will be nothing short of miraculous. Even the clue that the numerical equivalencies of the letters in his name will add up to 666. I've lived long enough now to hear all kinds of speculations. People wondered about leaders like Saddam Hussein because 
Saddam was rebuilding Nebuchadnezzar's palace on its site, original site, and rebuilding Babylon, which was his goal. Some believed, going all the way back to Adolf Hitler, even before then, Nero, Caligula, Napoleon. The church history is riddled with beliefs and many, many a sermon on and belief by leaders on who that person will be. I, I remember being warned that Ronald Reagan was the Antichrist because of his charisma and each of his three names. There were six letters in each name. Well, that's 666. Anybody can see that. Ronald Wilson Reagan. You remember he survived a mortal wound. Wasn't to his head, but let's not be too picky about the location. He still needs to be the Antichrist. The clincher was the fact that when he retired, his home address was 666 St. Cloud Road. I mean, he really should have changed something about that. That did it. John F. Kennedy was considered by many to be the Antichrist, working supposedly as the puppet of the Pope, reviving the Roman Empire. The 1956 Democratic National Convention, he received 666 votes, and that did it. He probably should have dropped one or added one somehow. When Kennedy was shot in Dallas, many believed that his mortal wound would heal and he would come back to health and reveal who he was. Of course, he didn't. Prince Charles of Wales, a lot of speculation about him being the Antichrist. His name adds up to 666. It's rumored that his ancestors are linked to the Roman Empire of old. Of course it is. But he's also a vegetarian. And that explains why the Antichrist will stop daily sacrifices in the temple. And that explains that. Barack Obama now is generating interest. The day after his election, the daily pick three lottery number in Obama's home state of Illinois was 666. I mean, that's clear, isn't it? I mean, the lights come on whenever you think about that. Uh, <laughs> possible. I mean, there's an ancient Hebrew word for all that speculation. It's pronounced baloney. Remember, I've taught you that before. According to the Apostle John, who coined the phrase Antichrist, he has some rather interesting things to say about the subject. And so let's rejoin our study in his first letter, 1 John, at verse 18 of chapter 2, where we left off. And that's what he's going to talk about. It's really difficult, by the way, for an expositor to outline John, and I'm going to prove that today because we're going to go all over the map, and I'm going to give you a lot of points and subpoints if you're taking notes. But I want to give you two facts about this Antichrist. Fact number one, and then I'll get into the text. The term Antichrist is used specifically for the coming son of perdition. And that, by the way, is how Paul describes this world dictator. Perdition, meaning lawlessness. He's over and above the law. Look at verse 18. As he introduces the subject, he gives an interesting phrase that I want to spend just a moment on. He says, children, it is the last hour. Fascinating. It's the last hour. Literally, these are the last days. Now, for the Bible students, to understand this term, you need to understand that this last days began at the first coming of Christ, and it will end at his second coming. By the way, we, we happen to have this incredible privilege of living in these last days. I mean, everybody sort of hangs their head over oh, in the last days. What a great privilege. We're living in this epic of time, this dispensation, you could call it, this administration. That's all it means. 
This epic, this period, which began at effectively the Lord ascending the church being created at Pentecost. And we have the privilege every day of being able to benefit by and grow by means of the revelation of this new testament. We don't have the shadows and the types and the mysteries that are fulfilled for us. We have wonderful revelation given to us by God. For in these last days, God has spoken to us through his Son, Hebrews 1, verse 2. Christ appeared in these last times, Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1.20. And here John reminds the church that we're living in the last hour. One New Testament Greek scholar translates this phrase from John's letter, My children, it is the final age. And that has suspense, that has anticipation, and that's where we're going to end today, our study, with that same sense, I trust. Now, obviously, the apostles John and Paul and Peter had no idea how long the last days would be. But if they thought it was the last hour back then, just how close are we now? Notice what John says next. Children, it's the last hour, and... And you've heard that Antichrist is coming. That really ought to be a capital A. By the way, John uses a singular noun here. He's pointing to an individual who is coming. And you'd think that John would stop and just talk about that problem of the one who is coming. But what he does is really interesting. He goes on to warn the church that they've actually got some pretty big challenges facing them right now. So here's a second fact. Not only is the term Antichrist used specifically for the coming son of perdition, the term Antichrist is also used generally, generically, for all those who deny the Son of God. Look at verse 18 again. Just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now... Even right now, by the way, he's saying 1,900 years ago. Even now, many antichrists have appeared. From this we know it is the last hour. In other words, there is this proliferation in this epoch of time of false teaching, false Christs, demonic deception. Now the word antichrist used generically is simply simply a compound word, anti, meaning against and Christos, or Christ, against Christ. You could also translate it instead of Christ. There will be those that will come along and say, you need to accept me rather than Christ. So they're not only against him, they are to be viewed as those that could be instead, accepted instead of of him. These antichrists are literally then nothing more than people who are opposed to Christ, they're against Christ, They're opposed to the things of Christ. They're opposed to the gospel of Christ. They'll say, let me give you this one instead of that one. They're opposed to the church of Christ. They may rise to cult leadership and some kind of prominence as false leaders and teachers who present themselves instead of Christ. And John kind of goes on a little bit of a diversion here as he gives us effectively four characteristics of this general use of all those who are against Christ. They're already effectively impacting 
his church and ministry, and it has continued to this day. So let me sort of follow his diversion and give you four facts about the spirit, this general attitude of Antichrist. Number one, and I've just mentioned it, but let me put it in principle form. They've actually been around since the beginning of the church. He says it, look at verse 18 if you didn't catch it. Even now, maybe you could circle that. Even now, many Antichrists have made their appearance. They're not the Antichrist, but they have the spirit of Antichrist. They are anti-Christos. They oppose Christ. They oppose his truth. They oppose his church. It goes all the way back to the time of the apostles when this was apparent. That's why you have to the Galatian church, Paul delivering a warning of false teachers who had already begun to preach a different gospel. Galatians 1.9. Here, get rid of that one which we delivered. Use this one instead. Paul warned the believers in the Philippian church that they were in danger of imitating leaders who were actually enemies of the cross. Philippians 3.17-19. Even the Colossian church was warned of internal heresies regarding ceremonialism and legalism. Colossians 2.8-16. and 16, Paul warns Timothy, the pastor of the church in Ephesus, about those who will depart from the faith, 1 Timothy 4.1, about those who have an outward show of, of godliness but no internal desire or power from God, 2 Timothy 3.5. And Paul even used this current scandal. Everybody was talking about it. It had literally scandalized the early church. A leader named Demas had kind of finally come out and, and, and made known his decision to reject the faith and pursue the world. So, so Paul would identify him by name because everybody knew about it. And then he would say, Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. 2 Timothy 4.10. So all that to say, this spirit of Antichrist is not a first century phenomenon. It carries all the way forward into the 21st century. They've been around since the beginning of the church. Secondly, they've even become some or many of them, members of the church. Look at verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. If they had really been of us, they would have remained with us. It's a fact of church history that false cults, anti-Christian religious systems in the world, even today, have founders and leaders and teachers who started out in a local church. It's also a fact of church history that these leaders do not necessarily openly deny the Bible. They just add more to it, which effectively replaces it. They're not people in the church with horns and tails, you know, so you can easily identify them. They don't have name tags that says, I'm an antichrist and I've come to mislead you. That's not how they signed their name. They've professed to be Christians for a time. They've sung the hymns, choruses. They've listened to the preaching of the word. They might have even put money in the offering plate. They participated with the people of God for a time. They were among us, John writes, but they never really belonged to the people of God. And that's John's point here. He's not referring to Christians who've lost their salvation, if you could, when they left the church. He makes it clear they were never Christians to begin with. 
Now, maybe you're wondering, does that mean if I skip church, you know, for a few Sundays, I'm in trouble? You'd better believe it. (laughs) Oh, wait, John doesn't say that. John isn't talking about what we refer to as backsliding. You know, that phrase for growing cold and in need of personal revival. We're in danger of that every day. John is talking about apostasy. He's talking about antichrists who eventually, though they have belonged to the church, say, I really don't believe any of that stuff after all. Now, in making this comment, John does imply, obviously, that the true believer has a desire for the assembly. And it's possible for that fervency and that commitment to grow cold, which is why the writer of Hebrews comes along and exhorts genuine believers, not unbelievers, but believers, to not avoid the assembly. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. So, if I ever meet somebody who tells me they're a Christian... You know, I'll at some point ask them, well, tell me, you know, what church do you belong to? And if they say to me, well, you know, I really don't go to church. I, I've never really cared about the church all that much, and, you know, I can actually do without it. Well, I have concerns for them. I might not doubt their salvation or the genuineness of it, but I, I certainly have concerns about their spiritual commitment and their growth. I mean, that'd be like me saying, I belong to a family. I've got a wife and, and, and children but I'm never around them, and I rarely see them, and it really doesn't bother me, and you know I can do without them. You'd have grave concerns for me. That would reveal my heart, wouldn't it? John is describing that kind of person, that antichrist spirit, who is against the gospel, against the church, against Christ, but they didn't start out that way. In fact, John informs us here they were actually members of the church at one time or another. But now thirdly, He tells us that they eventually abandon the fellowship of the church. Verse 19 continues. Look there. They went out from us, but they were really not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. In other words, they left us. Now again, let me take a little left turn here and tell you that don't make the mistaken conclusion that John is telling us that as long as someone stays in the church, they're saved. That's not what he's saying. Church membership is not synonymous with being a Christian. Every local church is a mixed multitude. What John is simply saying is that those who are against Christ, Antichrist, they might start out by showing interest in the church, but they can't stand the church eventually over the long haul and leave it. In other words, if a church is going to glorify Christ, if a church is going to expound on the truth, of Christ, if a church is dedicated to worshiping Christ, somebody who, who comes into the church and really doesn't want to glorify, study, or worship Christ will eventually say, I don't really like this place. I need to find something else a little more you know, comfortable. And this is, what, this is what's happening, especially in the American scene. We have what one author called in the church today a tourist mentality that is of grave concern. The author goes on to write, you enter that country as a tourist, you pay the fees, the airport, you get your passport stamped, exchange currencies for what works in that country, visit a museum or two, sample the cuisine, exchange pleasantries with the natives, purchase a little something to remind you of your visit, and then you're off to another city or country. Your heart wasn't changed in any significant way by your little visit, but it wasn't meant to be changed. You're a tourist. You're just visiting. You weren't planning on changing your citizenship. 
So here's the church, the author makes the analogy. On any given weekend, tourists can be found at the church. They pop in for an hour, enjoy the scenery, sing a few songs, listen to the natives talk, sample the local coffee, purchase a book or CD to remind them of their little visit, and then off they go. Their hearts were not changed in any significant way by their visit. But then again, they never intended to be changed. They are tourists. And then they're off the next Sunday. Perhaps it's a different locale, more accessible, maybe more interesting, maybe shorter lines, perhaps less demands on their lives. And they'll visit that site for a little while until something else attracts their attention and they're off and running again. How do you view the church, by the way? Are you a tourist or a resident? Every church experiences it, especially those that preach and teach the Word of God and call people to holy living. He adds some positive encouragement to the church that has lost these apostate members. Because whether you lose individuals because they're apostates or they just leave for other reasons, that hurts, doesn't it? The church body is pained by that. Not just those who leave over doctrine, but for whatever reason. And having pastor for 26 years, in fact, even now, the church this size, nearly every week, every other week, someone tells me they're moving out of town, and they come up and they shake my hand. And I say, well, praise God. And in my heart, I go, I'm going to miss you. It, it could be for anything. Some have told me, I found a new job. It's an hour away. I found a new home. It's, it's in a different city. I finally found a, a good preacher. He preaches longer messages. Yours are too short. Okay, I'm making that part up. All right. (laughs) Hurts. But for whatever reason, the church body has to recover from that, that loss. And so in the case of these apostates, John is encouraging the flock. He writes in verse 19, the latter part, they went out so that, passive voice, it would be shown that they all are not of us. In other words, it's referring to God. God is actually revealing that they were not part of you. In other words, by God's grace, he removes them from the assembly without the church having to remove them, which is another unique, painful experience, right? And here's the encouragement. The encouragement implied is that they might have remained in the assembly longer than they should have and eventually brought great harm to the flock by their unbelieving, anti-Christ attitude. Although they might never say it that way, that's how they would conduct their business. And the lives that they would influence would be hurt, damaged, offended. John effectively says then, God is protecting the flock this way. I mean, you didn't know it. You would never have imagined in a million years that that person never believed But thank God they left on their own. Maybe they were convicted over something. Maybe they thought the church was too narrow or too intolerant. Or maybe they believed that the church took Scripture too seriously or whatever. And I've gotten letters on all of these issues. But now that they've left, the good news is they cannot influence the assembly, the beloved, the flock, in the wrong way and in the wrong direction. One author, pastor, called this loss to membership Blessed subtraction. Now again, let me make sure I cover this point. Is everyone who leaves the church to be considered an apostate? No. If we see someone wane or someone leave or disappear, are we to assume that, well, they're just not a Christian? No. 
Otherwise, the writer of Hebrews would, would, again, not have encouraged those who genuinely believed in Christ to remain fervent in their commitment to the assembly. The accountability of shared partnership, love and good works, which is provoked as you can no longer be isolated, but you are invested in a body. I've always loved that telling incident in the ministry of F.B. Meyer, the British pastor who pastored in London in the late 1800s, who once visited one of his church members who had just kind of disappeared, stopped coming. Meyer was concerned and decided to visit him. He stopped in one cold night to see him and was invited in. He and this gentleman sat by the open fireplace to keep warm, and they talked about different subjects, just sort of small talk. Meyer had prayed that he would be able to communicate his concern to this wayward sheep, and the thought occurred to him. He simply reached for the tongs and took them and removed a hot coal from the bed of coals that were shimmering red hot there in the fireplace. And with his tongs, he grabbed just one of those coals, and he pulled it forward and away from the fire and onto the hearth, and then without saying a word, just settled back in his chair. For several minutes, he and this man sat there watching, just watching the coals in the fireplace remain hot and bright red. And they watched this solitary coal grow dark and cold. Without Meyer saying a word, the silence was eventually broken by this man who obviously got the analogy, looked over at his pastor and simply said, I'll be seeing you this Sunday. And that's a backslider. In fact, John Phillips, another British expositor, said that someone who is wayward, if you dig into their heart, sooner or later you will find Christ. And they are miserable in that state. You dig into the heart of an apostate and you will not find Christ. And they are happy that they have finally escaped. There's a world of difference between a true Christian who has fallen into sin and an unregenerate sinner. It's possible to be a Christian and struggle with sin and feel the weight of conviction over having grieved Christ. For the unbeliever, the goal is usually to appease the conscience. We'll learn more about this next time when we conclude this lesson. This is Wisdom for the Heart with Stephen Davey. We're glad you've joined us today. This lesson, called Antichrists in the Assembly, is only half done. We'll do a little review and conclude it next time. Between now and then, we'd like to get to know who you are and share some information about our ministry. We have a gift we want to send you. Stephen writes a monthly magazine called Heart to Heart. We send Heart to Heart magazine as a thank you gift to all of our wisdom partners, but we'd like to send you the next three issues to thank you for taking the time to introduce yourself. Each month, Stephen deals with a different topic and helps you understand how the Bible applies directly to real-world issues. As I said, we want to send the next three issues out to you, so please take a moment 
and introduce yourself. Just call us at 866-48-BIBLE. That's 866-48-BIBLE. Call right now, then join us next time for more Wisdom for the Heart 